Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. And this podcast is brought to you by Outer. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials, and is the only outdoor furniture with a patented built-in cover to make protecting it effortless. From teak chairs to fire pit tables, everything Outer makes has the look and feel of what you'd expect at a five-star resort for less than you'd pay at a big box store for something that won't last. Pat, and you know how much I love five-star resorts. Oh yeah, I do. And as you know, Pat and I spend a lot of time outdoors, and we love hanging out on our outer couches we're certain you'll love it too for a limited time get 10 percent off and free shipping at liveouter.com this is outer's best offer anywhere anywhere only available to the founder hour listeners get 10 percent off and free shipping at live o-u-t-e-r let me say that again for all you alphabet geeks live O-U-T-E-R dot com slash the founder hour. That's liveouter.com slash the founder hour. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder, if you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at the founder hour. Let's get into it. Our guest today is Sally Krawcheck. Sally is the CEO of Elevest, a women's-focused investment platform she launched in 2016. The company has over $1.5 billion in assets under management with a goal to close the gender investing gap in the United States by redefining investing for women. Prior to launching Elevest, Sally had a successful career on Wall Street serving as the CEO of Smith Barney, Merrill Lynch, and Sanford C. Bernstein. She also worked at Citi, first as the bank's CFO and then as its head of wealth management, a role she held until the 2008 financial crisis. She's been called the most powerful woman on Wall Street, as well as the last honest analyst by Forbes magazine. Please enjoy our conversation with Sally Krawcheck. Sally, thanks for uh, being on the podcast with us. We're super excited to learn about your uh, background, your story, your career, and uh how you became uh, one of the best investors uh, in the country, if not the world. Uh, so we are excited to have you here. Uh, we'd like to start it off yeah. with your early life. Where was Sally mm-hmm. born? Well, I was born in New Orleans. My dad went to Tulane Law School, but I grew up and I think of myself as a Charlestonian. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, they took me back there a few months after I was born and my parents were there. My grandparents were there. My great grandparents were there. Um, so that's, that's really home. I know you studied journalism in college. What did you want to be when you were like, as far back as you you can remember as a little kid, what was your dream? I I wanted to obviously sing with the Partridge family (laughs) and be like an LA star. Um, the problem with that was I was the only kid who in the whole fifth grade class who did not make Glee Club. So there was no singing talent whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Then I wanted to be an actress for a while. But I settled on Wall Street. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and actually, in between, of course, I was a journalism major at Chapel Hill. It was sort of, at the time, one of the few professions where you could see senior women. And so I could imagine myself in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I graduated from Chapel Hill, the journalism jobs were paying, call it $12,000 a year. And the Wall Street jobs at the time were paying the astronomical sum of $32,000 a year. So 
you didn't have to have a lot of math classes before you could figure out w- which way it made more sense to go coming out of school, you know, with no savings at all. Yeah. yeah. Did you have anyone in your family or, or maybe in your community or someone maybe outside of it that you looked up to that was perhaps on Wall Street or? No. 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 So why did no, you think that was something that would be a good path for you besides the money? Well, in fact, the opposite. I'll tell you a little anecdote. When I was interviewing, um, I had offers at, you know, Solomon Brothers and I think J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. And so I was fortunate enough to, you know, be in that outgoing class and and be looking at the offers. And I called my father, who's to this day a real estate lawyer in Charleston, and said, Daddy, what what do you think? And he said, well, definitely wouldn't go to Goldman Sachs. And I said, why? And he said, because I've never heard of them before. <laughs> That's that's kind of how much we knew about Wall Street, mm-hmm. but I'd read about it. You know, um, the CEO of Solomon Brothers had been on the cover of Fortune magazine, which you know I read in the school library, and so it was the late '80s, and it was the Silicon Valley of the time that if you could, you did. Yeah. You know, if you wanted a big career, if you could, you did. Did you enjoy your time at Chapel Hill? Who wouldn't? <laughs> I mean. I was the, I briefly overlapped with Michael Jordan. Um, I was going to ask, know, yeah, that was a good time to be there for sure. I'm sure was he was great. in all Lee your Smith, finance actually, classes. Yeah. He Smith was a point guard. I read, I actually saw him at LAX uh, two days ago, gave him a go heels. Nice. Uh, but what's not great about Chapel Hill? Honestly, what a. I've never been. Great. So I'm just, you know. Oh, it's beautiful. And it's really a great, it's a state school. It's very, you know, got lots of economic diversity there. Um, and it has basketball. Yeah. What what it's fantastic. and and the greatest basketball player ever, arguably, and some selection of them. Yes, indeed. yeah, yeah, yeah. right. So, were, were there other f- women out there when you were growing up, just in general, that you aspired to be like? Yeah, yeah. So, Aunt Helen, my next door neighbors had um, an aunt named Aunt Helen. We called her Aunt Helen, and she lived in New York and she worked for Saks. And she never got married. And she just seemed so, you know, so in contrast, uh, we're living in Charleston. My parents had us when we were young. There are four of us, age difference, oldest to youngest, three years and 11 months, no twins, no twins. That math is in fact doable. And so I look next door to Aunt Helen, who's in New York City and like living by herself in an apartment like this, this is the cat's meow. Yeah. Um, and Helen recently passed away, by the way. So that was that was sort of the I wanted to be Mary. You remember the Mary Tyler Moore show? I'm dating myself, but she was this sort of chic, you know, journalist living on her own, and then that's exactly what at the time I wanted. Hmm. Yeah, you're just like she's she's living the dream. That's 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 what I want to be when I grow up. And they, there's she has one bathroom for one person as opposed <laughs> to one bathroom for six people. That mm-hmm. seemed pretty impressive yeah. to me. Yeah. So, so you go and get this journalism degree. What happens next? You know, you, at, at that time, were you all thinking wall street or not yet? No, 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 not yet. Okay. So I, I interviewed, you know, as mentioned, journalism, wall street, got the wall street jobs and didn't exactly uh, pack my bags from Chapel Hill and drive to New York, but almost, mm-hmm. um, I think I went home to see my parents for a week or two. Um, but the other thing I, I visited New York when I was in middle school and just, just like, wow, wow, look at these people and this energy and this food and these different industries. I mean, I, I know y'all aren't New York folks, but 
Um, New York is a very special city mm-hmm. in, in my view, because in a way it's because everybody's New York is different. Yeah. You know, so my New York is a Wall Street New York. Other people have a Broadway New York. Other people have a Brooklyn media New York. Other people have a Brooklyn New York, a hipster New York. Everybody's got a different New York. Um, so you can make your own New York. So what's not great about that? Mm-hmm. I mean, was it love at first sight or, or was it oh, something yeah. that, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just well, like I belong When here. I was in middle school, I, mean, I actually literally remember my family went up for a visit to some friends of ours on Long Island. And so my dad was driving uh, me in to go to see Little Orphan Annie on Broadway or something like that. And when you come in to the Midtown Tunnel, there's a certain point at which you look up and there is the skyline of Manhattan. And then you sort of dip down and it goes away and then you dip up and there. And I remember the first time I like, <laughs> I was like the, you know, the wizard of Oz going to yeah. that Emerald city. It was like Emerald city. And I'm like, that is it. There we go. Okay. By the way, New York should just send me a royalty check right now. For, <laughs> I mean, honestly, especially right now, because the last time I went, it was it was a little smelly, a little bit, you know, dilapidated. So I think okay, they, I don't know where you were staying, <laughs> but by the way, yeah, not Wall Street. It's, yeah. Yeah. it's back. It's New bad. York is back. It's yeah. it's en- it's energetic and it's fun. Yeah, I mean, all major kind of metropolitan cities, I think, are having um, the same kind of problems in general. Yeah, but you know. I guess I guess you're a little bit more biased about New York than I, than I am. I'm gonna I'm gonna argue against you, um, except for stretches of Third Avenue that have the old like 1960s, yeah. outdated, awful looking corporate buildings on them. Mm-hmm. Go anywhere in New York, you you can't get reservations anymore. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. buzzing. Yeah, you know people are out. The tourists are back, and I know there are other cities that haven't bounced back as much, but. Um, I don't know what smelly place you were staying, but you should, I'm on the Upper West Side. It doesn't smell that bad. Yeah. It probably wasn't there. I got to ask, would you ever, uh, would you ever like run for office in New York? Like governor? No, no, never. I was, I was, uh, there was a brief moment in time when my name was put out for a position in the Obama administration and just the weird, nasty backlash from people who didn't know me was sort of, you know, sort of shocking actually mm. so no it's politics not for me yeah. i think fed chair probably a little better yeah yeah there you go there you go <laughs> um so when is it that you finally decided okay i am going to be going to new york i'm gonna work yeah. here how did that all come about yeah so that was spring of my senior year uh, when i got the job offer um and a couple of there, there are always a few from chapel hill who moved to new york so um my roommate and i um, decided to sort of make the make the trip. I remember being there the first night and being in an empty apartment and having no furniture and sleeping on the floor um, and thinking like it doesn't get any any more fun than this. Mm-hmm. Th- then it got really awful because I started work at Solomon Brothers, which no longer exists. It, it got folded into Smith Barney and Citigroup, and so it's all part of mm-hmm. you know the big big city now. Um, th- it was hellacious. You know, we talk today about women, you know, men, women and unconscious bias and workforce and microaggressions. There were no microaggressions. There mm-hmm. were macroaggressions. You know, I was one of, you know, in my incoming class, probably two, two, maybe three women in the in the class. And they they just didn't want us. And, and so it it was 
you know, Xerox copies of male genitalia placed on my desk to try to embarrass me. You know, people, I'd be leaning over a desk, someone would come up and pretend to attack me. Um, it, it was, it was hellacious. My boss, the head of our department was having an affair with three different women mm. in his office. And my desk was outside of his office. I mean, everything you've read, yeah, you know, bonfire, the vanities that happened, but worse. Right. It was wild. My, my first day at work, I'm wearing, you know, I went and bought my clothes in Charleston, South Carolina. And so like this long skirt and this little jacket and little flats. And I'm just like, yeah, I hated Charleston fashion. And am I allowed, am I allowed to say, are we all bleep me? No, okay? no, you could cuss. Good. Okay. Um, so th- I smell cigar smoke and this, ma- I hear the steps and this guy walks by me, cigar smoke, lo- big guy, low gravelly voice. And he looks at me first day work. And he says, what kind of fucking discount maternity wear is that? And he keeps walking and I turn to someone I'm like, who's that? And he's like, that's your boss's 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 oh, boss. Right. And you're like, this is a refined, elegant environment. Right. That's a warm welcome. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you clearly worked in that environment for many, many years. So I hope it got better. But what was it about it that kind of, and I'm sure we're skipping many years here, so we'll go back and forth. But what was it that drew you to that? To the, to the industry, to that world yeah. when it was still no idea, so sexist. I didn't know it was going to be like that. Yeah. And, and once I got there, I was stuck. You know, I, I didn't grow up in an affluent family at the time. Um, and so I had a $750 monthly um, lease to pay. Mm-hmm. And if I was like, ooh, I, I can't take this. I'd have to go bankrupt at the age of 21 or 22. Right. Um, so it was just a, this is, this is what it is. I mean, yeah. then people would go to HR. I mean, what was an HR? I had no idea what an HR was. Right. Um, so you just had to put your head down and grind it through. And, I, you know, and it got better. It got right. better. I mean, it got better in part because I was at Solomon for three years and left and went to it, you know, it found my way to Sanford Bernstein, which was a really a, a uh, interesting, eclectic, intelligent um, firm mm-hmm. that worked not at the center of Wall Street, but sort of to the side of Wall Street. Um, and I moved from investment banking, which was team oriented and so had a lot of those weird team dynamics, which could be good and bad, and moved into equity research, which was more of an individual contributor spot. Mm-hmm. And by finding the right company and the right role, I managed to find my do all the things I loved on Wall Street, which was the analytics and the problem solving and the fast pace, but without a lot of that interpersonal stuff that mm-hmm. you know at the time just wasn't wasn't in my favor. Yeah, and at these all these places that you're at, I mean, you you weren't just working there. I mean, you kind of broke that glass ceiling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and got to very high positions at all these different banks and. Yeah. I'm just curious in your own words, and you could brag here definitely is, is, you know, what is it about you that maybe set yourself apart from others that you were able to sort of get on that track and, you know, find such great success? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you're right. And at the age of 26, I was working at Solomon Brothers still in London. And I realized that I was the senior woman in the investment bank at 26. And of course, was being asked to get coffee and take notes and all the stuff that that happened. And so sitting there at 26 and, and I'm ambitious and driven and I didn't want to, you know, stay as an associate in the investment bank. I wanted to get to the top. Well, how am I going to do that? 
okay, well, I don't have any women role models. So if I do what they did, that didn't work. If I do what the guys are doing, I don't know that that's going to work. So what, what is the strategy that I can use? And essentially, it boiled down to don't say anything unless you have something to say. You know, the, so I, let me give you a concrete example. When I became a research analyst, um, so I'm on the sell side research covering the big banks, you know, at the time, the Merrill Lynch's and the, you know, the uh, Morgan Stanley's and so on. And a lot of analyst work is sort of taken up with housekeeping. You know, Morgan Stanley reported earnings. They were two cents ahead of plan, blah, 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 blah. My strategy boiled down to big calls on big stocks. And I wasn't going to write up the quarter. What I was going to do was when Merrill Lynch bought Yamaichi, fly to Japan and see if the, you know, stand outside the branches and see if there were people coming in. P.S. There were not. When when I wrote that, it tanked Merrill, you know, it hurt Merrill Lynch's stock as it should have. Um, you know, I wrote about American General. Everybody's, you know, American General is into this lending business. It's going to the sky. I'm like, American General is getting into a lending business that would later be called subprime. And they are growing, but the credit is deteriorating underneath their feet. And if I do this analysis where I move the, you know, I lag the delinquency numbers and I put them da 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 ba la la la, but this complex analysis, I can show it to you. People had to, and by the way, I was right and the stock went down and I was the only one. And so by using analytics and having real guts, I just wouldn't say anything unless I had something to say. And so as a result, pretty quickly, if you were covering the big banks and the Wall Street firms, which was my area, you had to talk to me. You just did. I mean, it didn't, didn't matter if I, you thought I was too young or you thought I was too female or you thought I was too much from the South. You know, you you, 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 I set the agenda. Mm -hmm. um, and so by doing that, I very quickly was ranked as the number one research analyst in my field. And then all of a sudden I got to director of research because I was standing out. And then I applied the same approach to business strategy. So when I became director of research, all the other research departments were doing research and investment banking. I don't want to go into all the details of it, but what it meant, they had a fundamental conflict, right? If you're doing the research to the mom and pops, you're, you want to tell them to buy a stock low, so it'll go up. But if you're doing the investment banking, you're advising the corporate, so you want to tell them to issue the stock high mm -hmm. so right. they can make more money. Mm -hmm. Who's your client? And I said, this is a conflict. And so took us out of the investment banking business, gave up millions of dollars of revenue. It didn't work for a period of time because we couldn't pay our analysts as much until the internet bubble burst in, two, you know, call it 2000. Wall Street firms got caught out, had to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in fines. Our business went vertical, and I was on the cover of the Fortune magazine as the last honest analyst. Yeah. And so this sort of natural contrarian streak of what can I see that other people don't see and how can I execute upon it means as an analyst, you had to talk to me and means as a business person, I had a risky career, but I had a successful career. How much of your decisions were based off of research and how much of it was just gut feeling? Almost, I think 100% off of research. Hmm. I, I always, particularly when I was a research analyst, 
I had this point of view that my intuition is no better than anyone else's intuition. That if I was feeling bullish, it was usually when everyone else was, if I was feeling frightened or whatever. Um, and so let's bore through to the numbers and see what they tell us. Now, obviously, we, we all know, you, you know, you can, you know, numbers are, can be moved around and you can see what you want to see. But I always, I always leaned into, and by the way, even if I, I did have a bit of, if everybody was going to the right, I'd go a little bit to the left, almost as a thought, you know, thought experiment, mm -hmm. like, okay, everybody's feeling this way, but let's play the game this way a mm -hmm. little bit. Mm -hmm. So you have this mega successful career on Wall Street. What ultimately ends up happening? And, and you can obviously give us the the raw story here of, of what happens that maybe causes you to want to leave Wall Street and pursue entrepreneurship, this crazy, risky, even more risky probably thing. Um, what happens? Well, you know, we're, smi we're smiling at each other because I got fired. So, you know, I I'm sure many of your listeners know, if you're going to go for it, it doesn't work out 100% of the time. And, you know, success and failure are, you know, two sides of the same coin. And so, uh, you know, I, after having, put, you know, had a differentiated strategy at Sanford Bernstein, um, I got a call from Sandy Weil, who was the CEO of Citigroup at the time, who had paid big fines in the research scandal and said, can you come and turn this around? Um, so I went from 386 people on a Wednesday to 40,000 people on a Thursday reporting to me. And worked at Smith Barney to turn around the research business, became chief financial officer. And then during the financial crisis of 08, 09, when the CEO had been turned over, we had a new CEO, I was running Smith Barney, the city private bank. Um, I advocated for partially reimbursing clients for products we had missold to them. Nobody meant to do anything evil. Uh, but we had made a mistake and missold products and were too bullish on them and, you know, thought they'd go down a bit in a bad market. They went down every all the whole way in a bad market and went to my new CEO and said, look, we're wrong. You know, I know the fine print says we shouldn't be liable, but we're we're emotionally liable. Mm -hmm. He disagreed. We went back and forth. I, I said, look, if we don't do this, we're going to spend our lives in litigation. It went to the board. The board sided with me against him. Newsflash, take on your CEO at the board level. Win or lose, you lose your job. Yeah. So lost my job for front page of the journal. But maybe you keep oh. your dignity or something, right? Like you keep your... Yeah, yeah I mean, I kept my head. And, and it was important to me because I, at my kids at the time, I, when people said, Sally, don't do it, just fold, fold your cards and, and stay to play another hand. Mm. Um, and I thought that sounds like pretty good because I really, I really like working and having a job and it was sort of my identity. Mm -hmm. But when I thought about the story, I would tell my kids about folding. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. So, so I get fired. It's on the front page of the journal. I, it's terrible. I love my job. Uh, you know, eight months, 10 months go by. Financial crisis continues. Bank of America buys Merrill Lynch. It is hemorrhaging business and financial advisors. And so I get a call from the CEO of Bank of America. You ran Smith Barney. Can you turn around Merrill? I'm like, yeah, I think I can. I think I can. And look at vindication for me. This is amazing. I'm going to run something even bigger than Smith Barney. We could turn it around. 
And so I went to do that and got to work. Oops, the CEO who promised me he'd be there for two years left after, you know, got forced into retirement by the regulators after two months. I have a new CEO. I'm like, I'm happy to leave. He's like, stay. Two years goes by. The advisor attrition rate, which was, again, 55%, we get it down to like five, which you might be, hey, Sally, couldn't get it done any further. No, because they counted financial advisor death in the count and sometimes they die. Yeah. So we we get the my I, the team I put in we get the business turned around. Um, it's growing, it's gaining share. Um, the attrition rate is low. It's it's all good stuff. And I get called in by the CEO two years into it. And this is the Moynihan era. Yep, that's right. Um, sort of a thanks for thanks thanks for being out on that glass cliff. If your listeners don't know what a glass cliff is, it's you know the the idea that women often underrepresented groups can be given the hard chore of turning around businesses that are cruddy. Um, and so it's called a glass cliff because you can fall through it. But now that it's turned around, I want to, I'm going to give it to this guy I've worked with for decades, who's never run a wealth management business before in his sixties, my friend. And thanks. And I'm like, what, what you're like, you're, you're getting rid of what? And so again, front page of the wall street journal, score twice, um, world record, only woman get fired twice front page of the wall street mm. journal. And so to answer your question, I'm like, you know, entrepreneurs, I'm like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to do this again. Mm. Um, I think I'm going to find something else, but it took a few years. Sally, dur few years during this time, I mean, you, you know, multiple years, obviously that you're in this world and it's, uh, to this day, still a very male-dominated world. Whether yeah. it's you know banking, real estate, any sort of investing, it's 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 still very male-dominated. How how do you get your way right as someone? Yeah. And obviously, you're more experienced. You probably know better. You're you know you're relying on the facts and the data and the research. How do you convince the the yeah. white man who dominates this industry especially in places like new york i think in la we maybe have a little bit more diversity i'm sure new york does too these days but in the time that you were coming up how how do you persuade how do you convince yeah. others listen to me i'm right yeah yeah well part of it is know where the power is and go for the power um i i you know i wasn't in Wall Street, the power is not in HR. In Wall Street, the power is not in PR. In Wall Street, the power is not actually in technology at the time. It is today, but at the time. Um, the Wa Wall Street, the power was in the numbers. And so I had a leg up, having been a research analyst, really steeped in the numbers for the industry with therefore strong perspectives that others just didn't have the depth on. And then I mentioned in passing, I was the chief financial officer of Citigroup. Mm -hmm. So the, you, I had the numbers. I mean, you want to talk about a position of power? You've got the numbers at a numbers-oriented company. You you have the position of power. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, therefore you speak from more knowledge than other folks mm -hmm. because you, you've you got them. Not in a, I don't like in a weird way, like I wouldn't share them, but it was just my full-time job. Mm -hmm. Whereas other people had other full-time right. jobs. How did you, I know you were, you've been called the last honest kind of person or last honest analyst on Wall Street. Um, how did you maintain that, I don't know, that value 
Because I feel like when you're making that level of money on Wall Street, I mean, we know people that have made millions and tens of millions of dollars on Wall Street. It's it's easy to kind of forget about oh. honesty and truth and being an ethical person. How did you stay true to your roots? Well, one thousand percent. Well, and it cost me. You know, I'm not going to talk about um, when I was when I left City, invited to leave City, the gentleman who got pushed out a month before me. Um, took home a boatload of money, boatload of money, and went quietly and, you know, slipped out the back door and so on. And when they invited me to leave, they offered me zero. Um, so that's a, that's a big price to mm -hmm. pay mm -hmm. for feeling good, you know, sort of doing the right thing. But so, you know, in a way, so what? Right. You know, I, I just have like enjoy being in the business and in the game so much mm -hmm. that it's, to me, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, there's always a money component. We live in a capitalist society, but money, it wasn't the number one thing for me. The, the number one thing was the, just the ability to build businesses and affect people's lives in a positive way um, and do things that other folks just don't get to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and be engaged in a way um, that's really thrilling, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But there's a cost to it. And there's research that shows that when women are, I'm going to say the word whistleblower, I wasn't a whistleblower like right. that. But when women are sort of that conscience of the company, they pay a higher price for it. They, mm -hmm. you, you might think, oh, look, she was our conscience and pointed it out and thank you. Yeah. But it emphasizes the otherness. And no one wants to be told, you know, particularly from a woman, it's just like your mom scolding you. Um, so there's a real price that to be paid and that I did, in fact, pay. I mean, when I left, you know, I talked to a, a search person who's a buddy of mine to this day and was like, all right, well, back in the game, you know, and he said, you're not going to get another job. For a long time, you're going to be selling on everybody's search list. You know, when somebody's looking for a CEO of a Wall Street, you know, Wall Street firm or an asset management, investment management firm, you're you're going to be the diversity person. And you're now because of all this sort of well known, but you're not going to get the job. Mm -hmm. it's, you're a troublemaker. Mm -hmm. In general, and I mean, obviously, based off of your career, how does one. Instead of fitting in, which I feel like is probably the easier route, how do you stand out while not causing too much trouble. Too much trouble. Because <laughs> oh, no. I mean, yeah, and I'm not saying trouble's bad because I, yeah. I love causing trouble. I love being that disruptor internally at my firm too. But how do you do it in a way where you're not like, right, she's, oh, you know, she's that one, you know, yeah, woman the, that's yeah. like in senior position, yeah. thinks she knows everything versus like, no, 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 this, I'm trying to change the culture here, right? Like yeah. we, everything you guys are doing is wrong. We've got to okay. go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 no. I don't. I think if you ever come in, everything you're doing is wrong. You're, you're, you're out immediately. Yeah. So let me give you sort of the corporate politics answer and then the real answer. You know, the way I found to do it in big companies um, was not to come on like a bat out of hell, but instead, you know, use phrases like, hey, just to play devil's advocate, you know. I hear you. Let's make sure we're examining all of the options and alternatives, mm -hmm. you know, um, just for fun. 
could we? And, you know, sort of, okay, we're in it together. We're exploring it together. We're looking at it together. Um, is it a little disingenuous? It may be a little disingenuous. You know, does it work? Forget about the man woman thing with people that works with people right. as opposed to come boom, you know, straight at their idea. Mm-hmm. And by the way, let's be clear. I'm not always right. I mean, I, I'm not like, oh, I'm yeah. so, so smart and good. You know, I've been wrong a lot. Like it happens multiple times a day. The real answer, of course, is start your own business. You know, start your own business. Mm-hmm. The, and particularly if you see something that is truly different from what's there. So an example, Alabest, um, you know, is, is built on the mission to get more money in the hands of women and built with the strong point of view that the way to do that is to help women invest. That that has been the way to build wealth in this country. Women do not invest as much as men do. Mm-hmm. If we can get women investing and building wealth, you know, we're all better off. Mm-hmm. The women for sure, but society and the economy and their kids and nonprofits and the client. I mean, like we're all better off. Yep. Um, if I had people say to me, why didn't you do this when you ran Merrill Lynch? Um, and the answer is, why would I have? We were making billions of dollars. Our and, also what, and also what personal incentive do you have to do that at Merrill Lynch? Nothing. Yeah. They're, they're going to be the Nothing. ones that profit off of your good idea yeah. and goodwill. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I was doing pretty well too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why would I take a big risk? You know, innovators right. dilemma, right? But the, the brand symbol was a bull. <laughs> like, Hey ladies, come on in. Look at this bull. This is not going to, not going to work. I will say sometimes so, bulls, they die. Right in that, what is that? Like not the in the bullfights. Oh sure. You know, oh sure. They're not always oh, sure. the winners. Yeah. But uh, but so the real answer is, you know, start your own thing if you're privileged enough to be able to do so, um, and build from there can mm-hmm. be. It's I cannot tell you, um, you know, how hard startups are. Like so hard, unbelievably hard, bleeding out of your eyes, hard. Um, but easier than trying to take it an established successful company mm-hmm. and turn it inside out. Just to play devil's advocate though. Not, I'm not trying yeah. to start on like the corporate dude here. Uh, Cause yeah. all those words sounded like a corporate, like meme account, yeah, I know. Um, I know. <laughs> you know, but you know, we, Pat and I talk about this on several of our podcasts, this concept of entrepreneurship versus intrapreneurship mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of people that are entrepreneurial by spirit, by nature, they want to disrupt, they want to create change, they want to innovate. And to your point, it's very, very hard to go out and start your own thing. You know, and I know Merrill Lynch is a massive firm, Bank of America, massive company. How does one, you know, become an entrepreneur at a place like that? Is it even possible? I don't know. I, 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 I've never done it. I don't know. Um, I do know that everything strains against it. Hmm. You know, I would think you have to get the blessing of the CEO mm-hmm. and you have to be sent off someplace right. to do right. it. You know, my, my story, you know, when we remember it's city, we were trying to do, you know, produce a new product that took capabilities from the Smith Barney side of the business and the consumer banking side of the business. Mm-hmm. And we got caught in negotiating the revenue share for one year one year. And I remember my CFO coming to me and like, well, we finally got it worked out. It's going to be 43%, you know, blah, 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 57%. And I'm like, 
43% of zero is zero, buddy. <laughs> you know, but that was the, the culture. And I think the other thing about so many corporate cultures um, is somebody's going to say no. Yeah. If you're innovating by definition, right? It's different. It hasn't been done before. It's not intuitively obvious, et cetera, et cetera. Right. By definition. Can't Otherwise you would have already done Can't it. spell innovate without no. Yeah. And, and so somebody at many companies that I was, somebody's going to say no someplace. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the CFO. Like we don't have the resources. We, yeah. we're, we need to meet consensus estimates this quarter. It's, you know, it's going to be the head of marketing. I don't, I don't, I'm not able to blah, 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 blah. You know, and, and so you're almost in some companies may not be all of them. You can be just guaranteed of, you'll get the momentum and then somebody in Australia won't like it. Mm-hmm. Sally, how did you manage life and work when you were in the corporate world? I worked most of the time. <laughs> and that just, and that made you happy? Yeah, I loved it. I, I mean, I, I loved my job. I know, I know what you're asking. What am I asking? Yeah, I think you're asking my work-life balance and the kids. No, I don't. I, I don't like the, wanting to do it because I'm a woman. No, no, no. And, and I hate the work. Pat and I talk about this. We hate the work word work-life balance. I think years ago, yeah. a guest of ours used the words work-life rhythm, and it was like because there's really never a balance. There's going to be days that it's only work. There's going to be days that it's only life. There's going to be days yeah. that you feel motivated and unmotivated. So. Not that's not necessarily a question. It's there, there. You have a lot of responsibility. You have so many people respond to you. Yes, you have your life at home, but but really, how do you kind of mentally balance those things? Yeah, look, I went I went hard at work, um, and I aim to be a mediocre mother, mm-hmm. which which sounds so horrible, particularly because you know women uh, you're supposed to achieve everything. But I'm like, if I'm like middle of pack mom, that's pretty like I'm good with that. Right. I, I don't have to be the, you know, mom who, you know, bakes the fresh baked cookies, though I did. Actually, I'm pretty, pretty damn good baker. Um, but I, you know, I don't have to always be the class mom and always be working in the library at three o'clock and, you know, make sure the kids are I'm personally transporting right. them to the piano. Um, so I thought if I can be I want to be for this reason, outstanding mm-hmm. at work and I want to be. Mediocre. Mm-hmm. at home. Um, and I'm not keeping up with my friends from college for this time of my life. And I'm not going to be, you know, th- I'm not going to exercise. There were years I didn't exercise mm-hmm. up until the financial crisis. And then I had to, but I, I just put some things on the burner and you, I'm sure you won't be surprised here. I have a terrific husband who was at a different stage of his career. And so when I was really going, you know, had my first huge job, he went to two to three days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so was, was more with the kids and, you know, he and I had a united front when my son, you know, uh, one night when I came home from a trip to Asia was like, I need to see mommy more. And we're like, well, is it mommy or is it a parent? Right. And, um, it was a parent. Mm-hmm. So once you decide, I don't, I've done this wall street thing. I don't want to go back. Mm-hmm. What is mm-hmm. like the immediate next step? You know? At this time, maybe you're thinking, I want to focus on getting more money in the hands of women and helping women invest more. What do, what do you do? Yeah. yeah. I wandered in the desert for a while. Um, I, you know, should I start a hedge fund? You know, and, and now I say I wasn't going to make, I had, you know, should I go to this medium-sized company and run it? Should I try to buy it? Should I try to 
you know, raise some money and buy out this sort of mediocre company. And there was a lot, a lot, a lot of iterating. And I got some pretty terrible advice from people at the time. Um, a good friend of mine, um, do not, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, should I do something for women? Huh. And a good friend, you know, a couple of good friends went, no, do not. Do not, Sally. You're in the varsity. Don't go to the junior varsity. You, you know, don't restrict yourself to half the population. You know, think of yourself as blah, 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 blah. And so there's, there was this. I'm trying to, I'm looking for the word, but there was sort of a dismissal of four women as being lesser mm -hmm. and, you know, not being as important. Like almost like career suicide for you to go down. Yeah. That. Yeah. yeah. And just, you're just going to limit yourself. And, and why would you, why would you, if you're in the varsity, why would you go to the junior varsity? Think bigger than that. And I've heard this on several occasions. You know, I had a, was on a podcast a couple of years ago and a young woman said, well, I see women you know, are building, you know, unicorns, but they're in businesses for women. Like, when are we going to see them build a unicorn in a quote unquote real business? And I, I almost came across the table at her, um, almost came across the table and said, that is internalized misogyny, my friend, mm. you know, not your fault, you know, but you, how, how are you dismissing this? Mm -hmm. How are you dismissing this? You know, you wouldn't say a business for men is, is not a real business. Um, anyway, so I had sort of that coming at me and, you know, it all came down to one moment when I was putting on my mascara. Um, and I just knew, I just like my, the, my, the mirror started to almost shake and I'm like, I'm just about to have like an insight. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It's happened to me a few times in my life, like, ah, and all of a sudden sort of what popped up in my mind was, which a little odd. The retirement savings shortfall in this country is a, is a woman's issue. It is a gender crisis. And we do not talk about it or recognize it as that. 80% of women die single. Women are much more likely to be in poverty in retirement. Women typically outsource the money in their life to the man in their life if they're in a relationship. When it comes back to them, 74% of women have a negative surprise, and it's pretty much too late at that point. Um, huh. Oh my gosh. You know, and if I were in a rant, you know, rampant feminist mode right now, you know, I would say maybe the reason we don't talk about this more is because, you know, our representatives in government tend to be more male than female, you know, and it's going to be their problem. And so I sort of iterated from this, oh, I never thought of it as being a woman's issue to how do we solve it? You know, the time it felt like lean in was going strong. And so, okay, the pay gap, you know, someone's working on the pay gap. And then sort of got to women don't invest as much as men do, even adjusted for that. And it's costing us a fortune, a fortune over our lives. It is the difference. My industry knows this, but my old industry blames her. Well, women are risk averse. Well, women need more financial education. Well, they're not so good at math. Well, they don't enjoy trading. The underlying message really being we have built an offering that is works for everybody is, I don't want to say perfect, but we have built this and they didn't come. So it, it must be their fault. Mm -hmm. At LFS, we're like, maybe an industry where 98% of mutual fund dollars are managed by men, e even though, P.S., women 
are better at this. It's research proven, not my opinion. Not where 99% of investment dollars are managed at companies owned by men, where 86% of financial advisors are men, where 90 plus percent of traders are men. Maybe we built a business for men. Mm-hmm. Didn't mean to, nobody's fault, you know, mm-hmm. but women aren't as interested in crypto or weren't or trading or large cap value, small cap growth. Mm-hmm. Women are more interested in investing, not as a, as an activity, but as a means to an end mm-hmm. and no one centered women in their businesses. And so what if we are the ones that do that? So that was sort of the path. Sally, you, you mentioned some, you know, really high numbers there in terms of the number of men versus women in certain careers when it comes to investing, whether it's uh, trading, whether it's crypto, whether it's real estate, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just to kind of take it back to the core issue of why, have you guys or have, is there research out there as to why that is the case? Um, Yes. And it is not that women are not as good at math. hundred percent. Yeah. Right. In fact, girls get the same grades in math as boys. And this is despite the fact that girls get lower grades for the same answers as boys. Hmm. It'll wrap your mind around that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, girls tend to get better grades in, in English, history, et cetera. And so there is something where they tend to go where they view their relative strength. So mm-hmm. that's number one. Number two girls and women receive societal messages that they are bad with money from the get-go. And it's even in the households Mm -hmm. uh, where we've got gender allowance gaps, for example. Um, I mentioned sort of the math at school, but even media, you know, for men, something like three quarters of videos and articles, et cetera, about money are positive and affirmative. Mm -hmm. CNBC and Bloomberg and Barron's and make money and do well. Um, and for women, two thirds are negative mm-hmm. and 90% essentially blame her for being not smart with money. So mm-hmm. you're much more likely with women to see things like don't buy the latte, right? don't get the facial, Sarah, uh, Carrie Bradshaw bought so many shoes, couldn't afford her apartment. Mm-hmm. So the way she's represented through media is as a dummy with money. Right. Never does it say, hey, you're, you're only getting paid 80 cents to a white man's dollar. Right. Like it's literally not your fault. Right. The, the other issue that I've seen like just firsthand is, you know, when, and I work at a real estate company, when we're hiring, there are legitimately less applicants that are women. And the reason that I've kind of thought, and this is more anecdotally speaking, I'm not going based off of the numbers, even though I got 302 applications for a job recently and two were women. But I think it's because there are already less women in the industry. And so when they look up and like, well, 95% of these people are men, what are the odds that I'm going to get to that level? And so why would I choose this industry versus another one? Representation. Uh, One thing you might want to do is check the language in um, whatever your ad is. Yeah. Because, you know, there is research that shows there can be language that is more appealing to men than to women. You know, like, we need a software ninja, you know, who's ready to crush it and, you know, kick ass, blah, 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 blah. Um, So you might want to check that. But 
um, look, I think it's, we get these societal messages. It's not for us. We get these messages in school. It's not for us. We go to these places. We look up, we don't see ourselves. And there's also, so one of um, the Wall Street CEOs a few years ago um, told, told me when he's coming into the job, he looked at his C-suite and said, we don't have as many women. Everybody knows why they leave. They don't get promoted up because they leave and we got to keep them. And he went through the stats and he actually found they stay. They just don't get promoted. And that the men are more likely to leave. The women stay, but they stay in more junior roles. And when he mm -hmm. went back through the performance reviews, and if you'd taken off the name so you didn't know the gender or the ethnicity, that, you know, there was no reason, their, their reviews were just as good or better. There was no reason for them not to get promoted, but it's the internalized bias we have where, mm -hmm. you know, you're looking for someone who's strong and confident and, right. and, and there's actually a new article, which I haven't read yet that, that, um, <laughs> that I think is out in the past couple of weeks, which is that women, like any characteristic a woman has is held, can be held against her at work. Hmm. You know, she's too old. She's too young. She's too flirty. She's too serious. She's a bitch. I hate her, you know, and it doesn't tend to be the case mm -hmm, with men. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I found that in my career, I've been the same person since I was three, maybe four. Um, but I have, you know, when we went back the history of my career, I've had CEOs who have loved my energy, mm. loved it. And I've had CEOs who almost couldn't look me, couldn't look at me. You just have to find the right environment to be in. Yeah, the problem is, you know, it's, it can be hard, right? Mm -hmm. It can be hard. Like, how, you don't even know till you get there. Right. Um, and then your boss, particularly if you work on Wall Street, there's change and there's difference. And, you know, what it's it's called, um, you know, it's, it's this sort of um, double bind that women can have of you're too bitchy or you're too soft. And you find that fine line, but it can be different for different bosses or different circumstances. So talk to us a little bit about um, how Elvest is going these days. Beyond my wildest dreams, sort of. Mm -hmm. um, it, I just wasn't, first of all, it's, it, you know, it's hard every day. Mm -hmm. it, I do not recommend anybody becomes an entrepreneur unless you must, unless you have an idea or see a problem that you must solve and you believe you can uniquely solve and you're able to do, you think you're able to do so. Um, what I didn't expect was the impact we're having on women's lives. I was in JFK last week, uh, flying out to San Francisco and had a woman see my Alavest bag and come up to me and do you work at Alavest? And you changed my life. You've changed my life. I had my money in cash. Um, I started to invest with you. I am going to graduate school on the money that I earned in, you know, next in August, September. Um, and her dog thanked me too. <laughs> um, it, you know, you, you sort of know it when you step back and you say money is women's number one source of stress and taking action is the top driver of her confidence in her future. So you intuitively know it, but it's when it's actually happening <laughs> um, that it just is so God gratifying. Um, but you know, every, every day's a grind, you know, every day's a grind when, you know, and the early days are horrible 
when you're trying to pull together, you know, the team and funding and making sure you're addressing the right problem and making sure you're building a product that addresses the problem and addresses the problem in a way that is so superior to what's out there that people will actually make the switch and you're building a brand and you're building a community. And I mean, it's just, it's just too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just too much, frankly. Yeah. Um, I've read, I read that um, at some point you, you, you talked about how um, you lost 80% of your net worth because it was tied up. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just, I want to talk about that because that's such like a, you know, when you're starting a business, especially it could be scary, right? Like, how do I, I mean, you know, how did you go about, I know you've raised money from very prominent investors. How did you go about fundraising and getting it up and running in the first place? Well, so those are a few different, few different topics. So the yeah. 80% of my net worth was when I was at City, where we had taken sort of a informal blood oath not to sell the stock. Um, and by the way, Sandy Weil, the chairman, went to the board and sold his stock when the stock was like in the 50s and the rest of everybody wrote it down through the subprime crisis. Um, And so I made the absolute classic, classic. I mean, my whole friggin' life I've been in investing and I made the most classic mistake, which was over concentration in security. But it was worse than that. It was worse than that because I never, I and my financial advisor never stopped to think if Citigroup stock goes down 80 or 90%, what else is going to be happening? Right. Like, gee, you know, if that happens, you could oh, lose your job, which I did, right? Your other assets could go down. You know, maybe your spouse, who's also in the industry, could have some issues. I mean, it's like every, it, I was concentrated like in every way. Yeah. Um, no, anyway. So you live that you was learn. that. Huh? You live and you learn. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> really. Hopefully, hopefully the lessons are not that expensive. But yeah. the, I think the lesson <laughs> learned is if you're going to lose eighty percent of anything, lose it when you're young, and eighty percent of zero is zero. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah. I, I really, I don't know that I was that young. No. Um, all right. So then, you know, on the company, um, fundraising has been a journey. Journey. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. The first round was easy. Because here's a here's a total you know here's an addressable market here's a problem here's what it, you know what a potential solution could look like here's my background here's my team and so I was able to go to I have the good fortune of knowing people who got money and was able to go to people that I'd worked with before who we pretty quickly pulled together the you know the seat round after that it got sticky. Um, because at that point it's based on the numbers, right? More so the performance. Yeah, but yes and no, yes and no, like the numbers, but, um, so, you know, I found myself there, there's one venture meeting that, that stands out for me where we went in, met with someone who said, your numbers are better. Not that we have ha- quote unquote, have a competitor. You know, because at LFS, we help women invest from the first dollar through to multiple millions. The introductory offering is a digital offering, a robo. She then graduates to a financial planner if she wants. She can then graduate to a financial advisor. So we're, we're really there for her, unlike others, sort of through the course of her life. But at the time, we were a robo, you know, when we started. 
Um, and this gentleman looked at our numbers and said, your cost of acquisition is lower by some good amount than those that I would think of as your competitors. Um, and your ARPU is good and your payback is, you know, now it's in months, but at the time it was in a couple of years. And, you know, this is what we would expect a little bit better than we expect of someone at your stage. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but your CAC is going to go up. Huh? Why? Well, we see this all the time. You know, you, it goes down at the beginning and then you're going to scale through your early adopters and we call it a smile and we're not going to invest. And for those that don't know, CAC is customer acquisition cost. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. That's right. Thank you for no, no, all good. checking me on the jargon. Um, our cost of acquisition, which in the time was in the hundreds, has gone down. I mean, not every day since then or not every week, but has gone down since then to now be way below the industry. Hmm. Um and so, you know, it's based on the numbers, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And what we then saw when we raised our Series B is, again, the cost of acquisition was low. The payback was fast. Um, and we got dinged on, you're not growing as fast as the competition. And I would go into the meetings and I'd say, yeah, we've raised less money. And so this is just math right? This is just math. How much money you raise versus how quickly you're able to grow. And you sort of feel like people would get it in the meeting and then they'd come back and say, we're going to pass because you're not growing as fast. You're like, well, that's because we didn't raise much money. Yeah, I know. But what was really happening at the time that I raised the last round is crypto was hot. And so when you go to fintech investors, where by the way, women raised just 1% of fintech dollars, you know, you were, you were out of favor for it. Um, so what I've done, what we did in the last round, which no one has done before, is we, we got our lead investors, we got the deal priced, uh, but rather than continue to sort of knock on these doors and say, no, we're, we're not going into crypto, um, we're actually, you know, investing in women and, in, you know, building a, series, a suite of products that help women and others invest in women. Um, what we did was we went out to women and we didn't, we didn't crowdfund. But we um, had friends of Elevest, FOE, form special purpose vehicles that grouped together women who were in our community who wanted to invest $10,000 or $100,000 or $250,000 and raised it differently than anyone else. So different, in fact, that I was invited to speak to the House Financial Services Committee on how we overcame, you know, and I mentioned women raise 1% of fintech dollars, women raise 1% of series B. That means one in 10,000 series B fintech dollars. And how do we overcome those kinds of odds? Mm-hmm. Are, is it, is the platform only for women or have you seen others also invest? Yeah, for sure. Um, so we, we are the one wealth tech app that has majority women downloads and we're about 94%. Mm. When you get to the, you know, graduate to the financial advisor relationship, I think it's like 40% men. Mm. Um, and what's, what happens typically is that she finds Alavest, she finds the financial advisor and he looks over her shoulder. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned before, we've been building out a suite of products that invest in women and other underrepresented groups. And, you know, 
past performance, no indication of future results and, and all of that for sure. But the performance has been what we would hoped it would be. You know, if you look at the research of uh, investing in underrepresented groups. And so mm-hmm. he tends to look over her shoulder and say, this is sort of cool. Mm. Y- you mean I don't have to just do a 60-40 investment portfolio? I could invest in workforce housing in the Carolinas fixed up in a sustainable way and rent it to women in transition? You you mean I could invest in getting working capital to women small business owners in Latin America? You mean I could invest in forest management? Like, that's so cool. Um, and so we tend to, you know, bring in women and then bring in their families pretty quickly thereafter. Sally, how much work are you personally or is LFS doing in financial literacy for wet women and even just just anybody? Uh, and and at, how early, I guess, yeah, in like life a younger too. age, like because yeah. yeah. a lot of times, you know, you know, I'll speak to men like we're learning in business school or in a similar yeah. school that's on, on the job. Yeah. And you have well, still no clue well, what's going I on. I know. Now, when I see this with my kids, you know, my <laughs> always crack up. My son went to a Manhattan school. Um, he did not, he was not enrolled in any personal finance classes. He did, however, take woodworking, which I mean, you know, comes in so handy in Manhattan, Literally. you know, <laughs> I mean, we, were, we were so happy when we moved so we could throw it out. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it, I know it's patchy, but it's ridiculous. So we, you know, we're not a nonprofit. Um, we don't, you know, we run very leanly as you might expect. And so we're not able to put together a curriculum going. To yeah, yeah, yeah. What we are doing is we have an Elevest magazine in, in air quotes where we've got a ton of information, you know, sent that centers women. So mm-hmm. we write, we're the ones who write not just about investing, but what's the real cost of a career break. You, you think two years, you make 80 K it's a 160 K cost. It's 1.6 million. Here's why, you know, let's, let's put it straight. Yeah. Um, you know, here's how to combine finances with your partner. Here's, mm-hmm. you know, what the breakdown of how you spend your mm-hmm. income should be. Here's, mm-hmm. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. You know, hundreds and hundreds of articles. Plus, when she joins Elevest, workshops and worksheets and seminars and all the things, all the things. What I would say is part of our message to women, though, is hey, you've been socialized your whole life to get A's at school, to be prepared, to be buttoned down, you know, to expect the higher bar. Investing just doesn't have to be that hard. You, you don't have to know what an options straddle strategy is, you know, I'm making stuff up, but you know, in order sounded to real to me, I was like, wait, well, what is that? I was like, I don't know what that one is, <laughs> but you, you don't have to know, like you just don't have to know. And it, it and it, it shouldn't take up counterintuitively. It shouldn't take any of your time. Mm-hmm. You should set an account. It takes 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would argue for many, it's the highest return 10 minutes of their lives. You know, how, how and, much, so the one question I have that I feel like we have a conversation with a lot of people all the time is in, in the United States and even in cities like major cities like Los Angeles and New York and San Francisco, right? All the major cities across the U.S., you're barely making enough money to survive, nonetheless, invest. What sure. What is your take on, number one, that and how would one in that position still put yeah. something aside, yeah. right? Yeah. Like b- yeah. Because I know the power of compounding and you know the power of compounding, so... For sure. Um, look, you got to do what you can do. You got to do what you can do. 
Um, and, you know, a first rule of thumb is if you can't afford it without putting it on your credit card and, roll, you know, paying interest on it forever long, you can't afford it. I mean, I'm, you know, and I don't mean to be tough. And there are times when you have to, for sure, in emergencies. Um, but you got to do what you can do. And you got to get the credit card debt paid off first. You got to build an emergency fund. You start investing in retirement through the match if you have one in the 401k to get the tax deferral. Ideally, that take-home pay, 50% goes to needs, 30% goes to fun, and 20% goes to all the things that set you up financially for later in life. So that credit card payment, et cetera. And if, all, you know, LFS has no investing minimum. Um, so if all you can afford is 10 bucks every two weeks, it's 10 bucks every two weeks and just keep it going. And then, you know, maybe it's 1% of your take-home pay and you've got a recurring deposit and you get to do it. And then it's 2% and then it's 3% and then it's 4%. Mm -hmm. Do what you can do. Right. And sometimes it's nothing and sometimes it's more, mm -hmm. right? You know, the kids go, the kids fly out of the nest. Well, then, you know, put 50% aside if you don't have them to pay for. You just have to, you have to do the best you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious in your head, like what is kind of the vision for the long-term vision for Elvest and in general, like industry wise, obviously we've seen in the, you know, with technology and, and new, new things coming out, we've seen a lot more tech enabled sort of investment advisors and robo advisors and things like that come out. Do you, and I'm sure they're, they're all sort of kind of digging into the pie of like the industry and, and how much AUM is yeah. like, you know, around, yeah. uh, but what do you see happening industry-wise yeah. as well? Look, I, I think we're a category of one. Um, you know, we because it's financial services, we have a zillion competitors, but you know, we have none. Many of our women have not invested outside of the four hundred one k, and so it's not they're looking at Elevest and comparing it to someone else. They're looking at Elevest and seeing a community and a brand. They're seeing an investing algorithm that's the only one that centers them. And what do I mean by that? You know, planning for retirement. Well, women, you know, earn less, take more career breaks and die later. So if you're giving them, quote unquote, an average algorithm, then they could run out of money. I um, mean, if not run out of money, then end up in the, ba you know, the basement of their, you know, for their kid's home. Mm -hmm. Um you know, we also, you know, try to get them a higher percent of their pre-retirement income than others do. We also have more conservative forecast as we, you know, reverse engineer. So we we center women. We provide that education for we provide those workshops. So, you know, do we have competition? Yes, it's everybody. Is there a head to head? We're just a different, different organism. And lots of people have tried this. You know, City had women in co. There were a lot of startups that tried it when we launched. We sort of got the magic, you know, all the components that sort of came together where we recognize. I think the big thing is that most folks, when they think about women and investing or women and money, posed, to the, posed it to themselves as a marketing problem. And we said, we actually think it may be fine, a marketing problem, but also a product problem. Mm -hmm. And then nobody shifted the underlying product to be something that made sense for her. Sally, what does 30% of your fund look like? Because you said, you know, the 50, 30, 20. I'm just curious, when you're not in startup mode, if you're not in investing mode, what are, what are your passions outside of that? Oh, for me personally? For you personally. Oh, I still have fun. 
Um, I am a much better chef than you would imagine. Like I'm, I'm really, you know, excellent. I, I would excellent. I would say, um, as my daughter said to her father, my husband, what's it like to live with a gourmet chef? <laughs> um, so I didn't get to do as much of that when, yeah. you know, I was younger as I liked, but I find that very relaxing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, a little bit in, I'm never going to do a marathon because high heels destroyed my feet, but I'm a little bit in, in training right mm. now just to, you know, get buff. Yeah. 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 I, like <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uh, fr- from a platform standpoint for Elevest, how much of it is focused on alternate investments, if, if at all? Yeah. Well, it's not for everybody. For those clients for whom it makes sense, um, you know, there's a, a good concentration on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on one's wealth level and ability to take on liquidity risk, it can be a teens percent of a portfolio. Um, we love them. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an argument, the 60, 40 investment portfolio is dead that in theory, you know, your 60% equities, 40% fixed income diversified for you. And of course that wasn't the case last year. Um, and people argue it won't be the case going forward, which is, why we love the privates because you're a, I, I don't believe in alpha in the public markets that you can earn excess returns by trading stocks. There are too many people, too many smart people doing it as their full-time jobs right. for decades. Yeah. You know, for me as an individual investor, even a professional investor to consistently outperform. In fact, the percent of active investors who consistently over five years outperform the S and P is a fraction of one percent, mm-hmm. right? Where the alpha is available is in the private markets, and the more that we can make that available for people, and even, you know, think about how to continue to bring it to people who who don't who not accredited investors. Um, I'm all in favor of that. And what do some of those include? Because I'm sure a lot of our listeners aren't necessarily investing gurus, and and perhaps they want to become more acquainted with it. What what are some of those other? Uh, uh, alternate investments that they can yeah. look into and start kind of educating. Yeah. Themselves so, about. so let me, let me talk about my favorite type of investing, which is investing in women. And by the way, when others were doing crypto, we were doubling and tripling down on investing in women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love it because it's my passion and I love it because that it is where the excess returns have been. Are you referring but to women owned businesses or what specifically? All of it, all of it, all of it, all of it. So in our privates offering, whereas most something like 98% of privates or alternatives are managed by men, in from Elevest, it's 80 plus, 85% is women, senior women and other underrepresented groups of the managers. Mm-hmm. So it's in that, it's that level. It can be investing in women-run venture funds. Ah, so it's that level. Mm-hmm. Investing in women-run companies. Ah, there we go. It can be, um, you know, investing in femtech, mm-hmm. so women's health, right? It can be, I mentioned earlier, investing in real estate, workforce housing rented to women. It can be mm-hmm. muni portfolios that are focused on um, community building. So today, if you back up, if you want to invest in women, what is mostly available to, again, accredited investors, so people with wealth, um, are mutual funds great or angel investing mm-hmm. which Access. i was thinking last night is a little bit like you know bicycle tricycle on the one hand the mutual fund amazing then rocket ship 
And Elevest is working to fill in the space in between with some of these private investments that aren't so risky, mm-hmm. um, but that are different levels of risk. Looking back on your career, what are some of the moments that you think clearly defined and clearly led to you being successful and on this successful path? Yeah. Um, I think the the first moment when I knew who I was as a professional was my first, very, very, very first piece of research, um, which we alluded to earlier in the broadcast. Um, was a life insurance company that everyone, all the other analysts were excited about because it was growing so quickly. And I said, this is, this is false growth. This is, you know, unprofitable growth. Um, the analytics were there and the call was bold. The title of the call was American General Woe Nelly. Um, by the way, American General was later bought by AIG and we all know what happened there. The call was right pretty quickly. Um, and I think it was the biggest adrenaline rush of my life. Except when UNC beat Duke in the Final Four. That was, in fact, the biggest adrenaline rush of my life and maybe the greatest night of my life. (laughs) But other than that, (laughs) it was the American general call. (laughs) And 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 at the time, the head of IR, Investor Relations at American (laughs) General, who who by coincidence was from Charleston, so our parents were friends, called me before I gave him, I don't know why, but I sent the research over to him to like, Hey, what do you think? And he's like, it's wrong. And you're going to wreck your career. Like, do not do this Charlestonian gal, (laughs) because if if this is your first, like nobody loves a pill, you know, everybody loves bullish. Like if you're wrong, it's okay. We're all wrong. Nobody, no, at the time we didn't have that many hedge funds as clients. So Nobody was going short. You either owned it or you didn't. Yeah. Right. It wasn't like you made a lot of money by going short. And so he said, if, if, you know, if you're right and you're negative, you're just a pill and nobody wants to be with you. But Mm -hmm. if you're wrong and you're negative, you get fired, which Mm -hmm. it was sort of right, but I did it anyway. And Mm -hmm. to me, that was sort of like that, oh, that, that was the S that was sort of like the core. So what's your call now? Do you think we're headed towards a recession? Like every, everybody's saying, or. Yeah. I'm not an economist, so I don't know. And it's not my job to forecast. Um, You know, we, the Fed generally, I don't know of a time the Fed has tightened and they didn't break something. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they broke, you know, Silicon Valley Bank. Mm -hmm. They didn't break it, but it broke in First Republic, which has a habit, by the way, of breaking, broke also in the subprime crisis. Nobody remembers it because Merrill owned it at the time, Mm -hmm. but it broke. I just don't know, were those our Bear Stearns or our Lehman's? You know, did it break and we move on mm-hmm. or do we have another break coming? I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It just feels sort of crappy out there right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's quiet. Um, I've been with venture investors. They don't know what, they're, they're, they're frozen. Mm-hmm. The Silicon Valley Bank thing just came out of left field. Right. And when something like that hits you on the back of the head that you never see coming, you're like, what else is, is there? Right. So what does one do? I mean, how does one get ahead? Not only financially, but, you know, perhaps listeners out there who have lost their jobs or are not happy in their careers. What do you do during a time like this where things are quiet, where it's uncertain, right? What does one focus on? Control what you can control. You know, I look, I tried this. It didn't work. 
Uh, but back, you know, I went to business school during a recession mm-hmm. and thought, oh, thank goodness, you know, I'll just go to business school and come out and everything will recover. And my timing was off. So I had to go back into a job I didn't want coming out of business school, but that's a thing to do. You know, I can tell you at LFS, we've spent time, you know, um, working to make sure we're ready for the next scale, you know, for the next big spurt of growth um, during this period of time. So, you know, shoring up the the technology, mm-hmm. and the infrastructure um, and, you know, focus on your customers and, and recognize that you may not be able to control revenue. You can control what you do and you can control expenses. Right. Yeah, I love that. Um, well, Sally, I, I feel like we could sit here and chat with you all day. It's been super fun um, just speaking to you, learning your story and and just hearing about all the incredible you know things that you've done and accomplished, but have yet to accomplish too. And, and we're excited to see what comes next for you and Elevest and and everything. But yeah, thank you so much for, for joining it's, us. It's been, it's been a blast. Thanks so much. Really thoughtful questions. And um, as you could tell, I enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, thank Sally. you, Sally.